Hey, well, I'm pretty excited to get to lock arms with uh, those two uh, and to also be similarly newer to Heartland and be a part of all that God has been doing here. And if you're newer to Heartland or it's first time back in a long time, uh, Dan and I serve along with Craig as part of our lead pastor team in this new season of the church that's ahead of us. And so I want to open up today as we go back into our series with a question, how do you rebuild something? When is the last time you actually rebuilt something? So for us, uh, earlier this summer, as we were moving into our new house, um, we had the challenge of reassembling a lot of our furniture that we had previously disassembled in our former home before moving down to Kansas City. And for the most part, I think, I think we, we did okay. You know, without the instructions that originally came with them, which in the case of Ikea furniture, let's be honest, those instructions really weren't that great to begin with. Uh, but we had most of the pieces, we were able to put this furniture back together, rebuilt it the way that it was meant to be, the way that it originally was. Uh, but we did have a few casualties as we were moving into our new place. And it was in the area of our kids' Legos. So uh, if you've not been in the Lego world for a couple of decades, things are different with Legos. All right, back in the day, uh, it used to be you had these rectangular blocks, right? And they just had different sizes blocks and like eight or nine kind of standard colors. And then you would, whatever your mind would conceive is, is you would use those, box, those blocks to build that. Those were the days of real imagination, okay? If you grew up in the 80s, yes, you hear me on that, right? Now, Legos are these customized sets, very intricate. You, you buy them together. And my kids, my two boys had acquired probably at least 20, uh, maybe a couple dozen of these sets, ranging from helicopters and sports cars, all different sizes, the Eiffel Tower, skyscrapers, um, Hogwarts Castle, a thousand-piece Millennium Falcon that, that we, yes, we painstakingly assembled. And so when we, when we knew, because they were, they were kind of don my kids' shelves like trophies in a trophy case. And then when it came time to move, we knew we needed to be really careful moving these things because of all the work that had gone into them. And so we, we carefully packed them into these boxes and they went onto the truck and then into storage and then out of storage and then back onto the truck and then to our house. And when we opened up these boxes, we, we opened up the lids and pulled out the, the packing paper only to see this complete disassembled mess of Legos at the bottom of these boxes, just this intermingled, obliterated mess of Legos. And I had to break it to my kids that these were probably a goner, that we may not be able to rebuild these things into what they once were, into what they were meant to be. In fact, they still sit at the bottom of those cardboard boxes. Because rebuilding things is hard. You know, it's especially hard. It's one thing to rebuild Legos or to rebuild furniture or to rebuild a car engine or, or any, any number of things that we can rebuild. But when what we're rebuilding involves people, that's even harder, isn't it? I mean, if you're trying to rebuild a team, if you're trying to rebuild a, a business, maybe you're trying to rebuild a marriage or a family or even a church, this is not easy work to do. And so over the past really about six weeks, of, as we've been in this series, we've been talking about how, how does God go about rebuilding things? And we've been looking at the memoir of Nehemiah way back in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah, we meet him, he's just a guy and, and he has this, this burden which becomes a dream, a monumental dream is what we've been calling it. And that's really what our biggest dreams begin as, is a burden for something that we feel. And he feels this burden for his ancestral city of Jerusalem that once had these walls surrounding it to protect Jerusalem from their, their enemies, but those, those walls were in ruins. And so he goes about this dream of rebuilding these walls. 
And last week, I don't know if you caught this in, in the passage last week, they did it. The walls were complete. And it says, it's kind of Nehemiah drops it in, just like a, a, little, a little detail. You can almost miss it. He says, so the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. The people of Israel rolled up their sleeves. They worked through the night. They overcame the opposition and the turmoil and, and they got it done. And Nehemiah's monumental dream of rebuilding the walls was finished. But what's funny is if you look at Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is far from over because the work still was not done. See, see, Nehemiah had a dream that was finished, but God's dream that he was working on was still going. And if there's something that we can take from this series up to this point, maybe kind of one key idea, it's that God often uses our dreams, our monumental dreams to accomplish his dreams. You know, sometimes God gives us dreams to do big things that he wants to do in this world. And so maybe you've had this dream of starting a family and maybe God gave you that dream of starting a family so that there could be more people in this world for him to love and more people who could reflect that love out to those around you. Or maybe you've had a dream of retirement and just, just all that. Yes, there's definitely someone, a few people here who have that dream of retirement and just all those years of hard work. And maybe that dream that God has given you that, that so that you can, he can create space in your life to plant seeds for new dreams of things he wants to do in your life. Or maybe you've had a dream of starting a business. And, and more than just, you know, finding an opportunity to be successful or to, to make some money, God gave you that dream so that there could be something, something else in this world that can bless people and make an impact in people's lives and in our community that can go about something that God wants to do in this world. See, God will use our dreams to accomplish his. And so for Nehemiah, he had this dream of, of building a wall. But God had a dream of something so much bigger. God's dream was to rebuild a people. God's dream was to rebuild a people. And so that's what the last couple weeks of this series is focused on. And we're asking the question, how does God, how will God rebuild a people? And we're going to look at chapters 8 and 9 of, of Nehemiah's memoir. But before we do, we have to ask the question, why are they being rebuilt in the first place? What is it that they are being rebuilt from And to do that, we have to do a little bit of history. And, and I know that my wife is a history nerd and buff, and so she's going to love the next few moments. But for the rest of us, it might be a little bit hard. But can you hang with me for a few minutes? I promise it'll be worthwhile. A little history? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, see, Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls in about 444 B.C., but we have to go all the way back to about 1500 BC, about 1500 years to when there was another guy by the name of Abraham. We studied him this spring, if you remember, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who was, Abraham was, was just a guy. And there was no Jerusalem, there was no people of Israel, there was no temple, no city, no walls. It was just a bunch of people scattered across the earth. And, and God comes to Abraham and says, I'm gonna, from you and Sarah, there will be descendants as many as the, the stars in the sky. And I'm going to birth this people, this whole nation from you. And down the road, we see this people become the Hebrew people who are enslaved in Egypt but are rescued by God because God tells them that, that, that I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, why does God do this with Abraham? Why do we see the Hebrew people, the Israelites, come to be a thing in the first place? It's because God is a personal God. And God's desire since the beginning of time has always been to live and dwell in relationship with people. That hasn't changed till today. And so he purposes this, this people to live in relationship with that he can then reflect, that they can then reflect that relationship of who God is and what he's like as a demonstration to the world around him that there is a God and who he is. 
And, and, and so he, he's a with us God. He's a, he's a personal God. He's not some far off God is what we learn. And so he gives this people, he says, he says, as we live in this relationship together, you're going to be a people, I'm going to give you land and I'm going to protect you in this land. And these, thing, these three things for the Israelites, most of the Old Testament kind of become their identity a little bit. And if you, if you want a picture of kind of how they're doing and living out this relationship with God, uh, you can kind of pay attention to these three things. If land and people and protection are going well, it means that they're being really faithful in their relationship with God. If they're a little rockier, then chances are that, that things in their relationship with God, then maybe the Israelites' faithfulness isn't quite going so hot. And so God continues to say, hey, hey, if you really want to kind of live life apart from me and apart from the ways that I have for you, then, then fine, I'm, I'll let you go that way, but I'm going to take away this land and this protection. And he keeps kind of threatening this, wooing him back to himself until there comes a time when things get so bad among the people of Israel that they lose the land and they lose the protection of God. And so what happens is the Assyrians from the north come in and they take over part of the land. And then, and then from the east, which, which way is east? This way, the Babylon, Babylonians from the east come in and they, and they capture the city of Jerusalem and they destroy the temple, the city, the, they ransack the walls, the whole place is left in, in ruins. And they take, they take the, the, the people of Jerusalem and they enslave them and the Assyrians do this too and they scatter them really across the, the known world. It was kind of, kind of one empire's way of destroying another empire's. We're just, we're just gonna, gonna remove your identity by just spreading you out. So no longer do you have any access to your homeland, to one another, even to your, to your religion, the place where you worshiped. And this is what we call the exile. And this is when, this was kind of think about the exile as, as an extended timeout that God gave the people of Israel. Say, hey, if you really want to kind of try to experience what life is like apart from me, this is, this is what it's like. But even in the midst of that, God never stops being faithful to the people of Israel. This is where we see the great promises of the prophets and the encouragement and, and God's words that even though this is a lonely and a dark and a hard time, this is when Jeremiah writes, when God says that, that when you will seek me when you seek me and find me with your whole heart. And so I will bring you back to the land from which I carried you. We hear these promises of restoration and, and rebuilding and reuniting the people of Israel back to one another and back to God. This is where the, the great stories of God's faithfulness and hope, the stories of Esther and the stories of, of Daniel, stories that maybe if you were in Sunday school as a kid that you, you read about and just proclaimed how, how powerful and faithful God was. This is the period of the exile when a lot of those things were happening, when God was reminding the Israelites, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still with you, even though life looks a little different right now. And a time will come when I will bring you back. And eventually that time does come. And Assyria and Babylon, their empires kind of implode. And there's a new sheriff in town. It's Persia. And Persia is kind of like, you know what? We're done with this whole enslave and scatter thing. You know, we're just going to rule the land. But if, if you want to go back to your home, to Jerusalem, by all means, go for it. And so there are these waves of people coming back, the, the previously scattered people of Jerusalem who are now coming back to Jerusalem over, over the course of, of many years. The problem is they're coming back to a city that's in ruins. And so slowly over the course of this time, we see the temple rebuilt, the city gets rebuilt, and then finally, the last piece of the puzzle is that the wall around Jerusalem gets rebuilt. That's Nehemiah's place in this story. And so yeah, Nehemiah's dream is complete. But remember, God's not just rebuilding a wall. He's rebuilding a people. And now how would he do that? And that's what brings us up to chapter 8. And I'm going to read the first few verses here where Nehemiah, in his memoir, he says, 
that when the seventh month came, so a little bit of time has passed since the wall was complete, the Israelites had settled in their towns and all the people had assembled as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And as he goes on in the rest of chapter 8 and then in 9, we see this, this massive kind of gathering of, of Israel together worshiping over the course of, of not just one, but, but multiple days. And I don't think we may be able to really fully recognize the significance of what's happening here. You see, for Ezra to come out and, and to read the, the book of Moses, this is what Moses came down from Mount Sinai with. This is where we find the, the Ten Commandments and all of the guidelines of God saying, hey, here's, here's how we experience this relationship together. Here's, here's how life will go well for you. All of these guidelines that he had. And so Ezra comes out reading these things, the laws, and he says he read them, he read them from morning until midday. Like this is, this is several hours. So if you've ever felt or wondered that like Dan or my sermons tend to get long, probably more Dan's than mine. Um, they were listening to scriptures for hours and it says that they listened attentively and eagerly, that they were standing up and bowing down and crying out, amen. And, and I think the reason why this is such a big deal is because this is probably, this is likely the first time that the people of Israel have gathered like this since before they were taken into captivity since before they were scattered across the known world. This is the first time that they're hearing the scriptures and one another's voices and worship together, almost 150 years of being scattered. And now we see this unity happen. We see this community and we see this desire among them to once again be the people of God that they were called to be. And we see God's dream of rebuilding his people start to come back to life. And he does this through a few ways in, in these chapters that I want to highlight for us. One, just so that we can see and be amazed at how God rebuilds this people who are so important to him. But also so we can pay attention to the ways in which he rebuilds us. See, I want to be careful because, because the, we, the church, the big C church, that's the, kind of the big C church. If you're newer to church speak, that's when we're talking about like kind of Christians everywhere, churches everywhere, that, that we really, at the end of the day, we're all on the same team with Jesus at the front of that, okay? And so um, that the big C church, we're not the, the nation of Israel, okay? God had a unique relationship with Israel and interacts with them in some unique ways in the Old Testament. But we are the people of God. And since the beginning of time, God has always had for himself a people that Adam and Eve were created in the first place to be the people of God. That God had for himself a people to live in a relationship with, a people of God who lived out the mission of God for the sake of the world. And so we see that in Adam and Eve, we, we see that in, in Abraham and Sarah and the Hebrew people and then who become the Israelites who are rescued out of Egypt. We see them as they come into the land and even in the scattering of the Israelites and now back together that they were the people of God who lived out the mission of God, that they had a purpose of not keeping God to themselves, but putting God on display for the whole world, that the whole world, that, that the whole world could actually experience this relationship with God and that they were the people of God who lived out the mission of God for the sake of the world. That's what we are too. 
It's what, it's what Old Testament scholar uh, Christopher Wright says. It's not so much that the people of God have a mission. It's that the mission of God has always had a people. And here, here at Harlan, what we might say is that, is that it's not so much that the people of God have a dream. It's that the dream of God has a people. And we're a part of that dream. And here, what we talk about, our, our dream, our monumental dream is to be this Jesus first people, to make space, to build relationships that make Jesus first. That our dream is to be the people of God who live out the mission of God, not for ourselves, not to keep it to ourselves, but to put it on display for the whole world to see who God is and, and, and what he's like. And so we have a lot to learn from, from how God rebuilds a people. Because if we're honest, for churches everywhere, not just our church, we're, we've kind of been through a couple years of being scattered. You know, you think a couple years ago when, when COVID was, was kind of rolling um, at the beginning of it. And we weren't scattered across the known world for, for generations like the Israelites were. We weren't taken into captivity. Don't hear me like that. But COVID did scatter us a little bit away from what we knew to be church. COVID scattered us to our homes. It scattered us from one another. We were scattered physically. We were, we were scattered kind of emotionally in all sorts of different ways. We were scattered. And then the, there, there came a day when, when we were able to come back together and if you took that brave big step of coming back to, to, to Heartland in person, then you knew that what you came back to didn't quite look the way that it did before the scattering. You see, that some people you found out stayed home. Some people might have scattered to different cities. Some people might have scattered to different churches. This is what churches everywhere are finding out, that, that we know that there's probably a good third of every church that, that, that hasn't been coming back in whatever way that looks like is coming back to their church, that there's been kind of a scattering and that we are in a season of being rebuilt. If you came back to Heartland, you saw that there was, there was maybe different faces here from what you were used to, definitely different leaders from what you were used to. And, and there's a lot that we learned during that season that we're going to talk about. But, but I believe that the opportunity that God has given us, as hard and as difficult as COVID was, still is, is that God is giving us an opportunity to be rebuilt. That he's giving an opportunity in this season to, to, be, to be rebuilt stronger and better, to learn what, what we've learned about what it means to be the church. That we can go into this new season, I'll speak for Heartland specifically, a better people of God who are living out the mission of God for the sake of our world. And he gives us a few ways to do this. And I want to highlight those for us. The first is this, that when God rebuilds a people, he restores them to his word. We see that happen here in Nehemiah 8. That, that it's interesting that, that when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, think about the wall for a second, that project, that, that he didn't show up with any instruction manual available to him. <laughs> he couldn't like go to the city library and be like, okay, uh, take part A, and uh, connect it to part B, and that's the Watergate. And then we're going to do, you know, there's, there was nothing like that. They just kind of had to figure it out on their own, and they did in 52 days. But rebuilding a people, there was no manual for it until Ezra the priest comes out and reads the book of Moses. That the first thing God does is he, he restores them to his word. And it says that all the people were eager to hear that they stood up and they, they bowed down. And I think that's because this may be the first time that many of these people actually heard the word of God spoken. Because remember, when they went into scattered all across the known world, they didn't take their Bibles in their pockets. There, didn't, there wasn't such a thing, right? They didn't get to take a, a priest with them who could read the word to them, you know, weekly. 
They didn't have that access. Maybe they heard stories of what God had done and they heard rumors of, okay, okay, these are some ways that we're supposed to live, things like the Sabbath or whatever, whatever it may have been. But this is the first time that for many of these people, it had been generations since people had been in Jerusalem. And for the first time, they're hearing the word of God and they're recognizing, hold on a second, there's, there's kind of a misalignment between the way that I'm living and the way that God has asked, encouraged, invited me to live. And, and I've been doing some things really, really off. And yet they respond with, with conviction and with confession. And that's not usually the way I respond when I found out I'm out of alignment. I'm the one who's aligned. That's the thing that's not aligned. A little bit, right? But the people of Israel, this is, this is the way... This is the way that they respond. It says that it raised insight into matters that were greatly important to them. That, that they realized that if they were going to be the people of God, then how they lived out their relationship with God and with one another mattered. And the question it raises for you and me is how do we receive God's word in our life? How do you receive God's word in your life? And as I say that, I realize it's a little bit of a punch to the gut kind of question. And pastors have to do this from time to time. Um, but I'm punching myself too, because it's something I think we need to, we need a little bit of a punch in a little bit. Is how do we receive, do we receive God's word reluctantly or eagerly? And when we hear God's word, when we read it or we hear it taught or whatever it may be, do we, do we read it with a spirit of, of conviction and confession and a willingness to adapt our lives to the way that God calls us to live? You see, the Israelites were convicted because they realized that the word of God shined a light on the ways that they, that they had been living that weren't as God had intended. And, and is that the way we respond to, to it too? A while back, um, uh, an individual had reached out to me after a sermon I had preached, and this individual, individual was, was really upset. And um, now this did not happen here, okay? Not at Heartland. So that, this would never happen at Heartland. Uh, no one here would ever, would ever reach out upset or complaining about something. You all are too good of people. Besides, besides, if you have any feedback, we don't listen to the negative stuff, okay? So, uh, but they were, they were, and it happens. I mean, I mean uh, as speakers, as teachers, sometimes we say things the wrong way. Sometimes we say the wrong thing. And so we have to be mindful of that and we try to really pay, pay attention to that. And so I wanted to learn more about this, this individual and what they were upset about. And as I did, what I learned was that they weren't so much upset with something that I said. They were upset with something I read from the Bible. And, and as much as I would like to harp on them, I can't. Because I get upset about the same things. I don't always like what it is that God has to say to me. I read his word. And if there was a, a complaint desk on, on God's, in God's office, then I've got a stack of emails for him to read about things that I'm not quite, that, that honestly mess with me a little bit when I read. And I think that happens for all of us. And we recognize that here at Heartland. It's, it's one of the reasons why, d despite God's word messing with us, we're so committed to it. Because we trust and we believe that if we're going to be restored to God as the people of God, we have to let his word mess with us. That if his word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, as Hebrews says, basically what we can, the way we can phrase that is God's word messes with us. And as we're kind of that's why we craft our communities and having relationships and small groups and things that happen, a crowded table, all sorts of things, men's fire pits that give us an opportunity just to kind of come around God's word in some ways. That's why on Wednesday nights we have midweek that we can pull up a chair with one another and be able to let God's word mess with us a little bit and be in it together 
and try to talk about what is God teaching us and, and how do I live this out and how can we do it together? How can we help one another out? Because as God is rebuilding us, Heartland, hear me say this. We don't want to rebuild, be rebuilt or, or, around God, around my word. We don't want to be rebuilt around Dan, Dan's word or Craig's word or any of our pastor's words because that's not going to allow us to be the people of God that we're meant to be. We need to be rebuilt and restored by God's word. And that's our, that's our commitment to God and to one another as a church. And when the people of Jerusalem hear the scriptures read, they're, they're interested. The question I want to give you is, do you let God's word mess with you? When's the last time God's word changed your mind about something? Because what I've learned is when God's word hasn't changed my mind about something in a while, I'm really not that interested in what God has to say to me. And so how do we let his word change our mind, teach us how to think, how to live, and how can we do that together? The people of Israel, they were interested. And they were convicted. And it leads them to do something else they worship. You see, when God rebuilds a people, he restores them to something else. He restores them to worship. That this beautiful scene in Jerusalem that over the course of these days, the, the people are rejoicing, they're singing, they're confessing, they're, confessing, they're reenacting scenes of God's faithfulness over the years. We, we see beautiful prayers. And, and I wonder what it was like for them to do that together. It makes me think a little bit of like in the midst of COVID when we were watching Major League Baseball games with, with like, like color cutouts of people in the stands. And there was no one there. And it was like, this is just so weird. There's like artificial crowd noises. We were trying to figure out how to do life from one another. And then all of a sudden, and it just felt strange and weird. And then all of a sudden, then there was the opportunity to safely gather back together. And if you've been in a stadium since then, like if you've been to a sporting KC game and to hear the noise of the people around you, the enthusiasm, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I forgot what this was like. At first I thought, I wonder if that was what it was like for Israel. But then I realized they had never gotten to experience this in the first place. It had been generations since they had a, had a worship service like this because the exile was this dark, lonely time. There was no online services from the decimated temple in Jerusalem to be broadcast out to Babylon and Assyria for people to stay connected to one another. This may be the first time that they've ever experienced a worship service like that. And what it makes me think, it probably taught them or reminded them, is that worship makes a way for God into the places of our life that were previously without him. It's one way we can think about worship, that it, it makes a way for, for God into places in our life, into our world that were previously without him. We sing this song from time to time, Waymaker. I love this song. Because it reminds us of, of, of what God's ways make possible for us. But it also reminds us of when we open ourselves to worship, that, that it makes a way for God's presence into our community. It makes a way for God's presence into our loneliness, into our doubts, into our fears, into our, our anxiety and our angst. Worship also makes a way for our praise into this world, which is largely space without God. That Jesus says, he says, that's why it's so important that we worship. Because if we don't, the rocks will cry out. Because our world is a space craving the worship of God, needing these things. And so that's why this is such a special time that we make possible every single week. And, and I know that worship is 24-7. And I know that we worship when we empty the dishwasher and when we go to work and all of these things. Don't hear me not saying that. Uh, don't hear me say that. Whatever. Don't hear me saying that. But, but, but I think there's something special that sometimes we can underestimate when we set aside part of our time to be together as the people of God. 
who are the mission of God for the sake of the world, of what happens when we do this. And there's a third way that God rebuilds his people. That when God rebuilds his people, he restores them to his work. And, and we might think, well, what work was God restoring the Israelites to? Because the wall, the wall was complete. The, the temple was rebuilt. The city was, was back at it. You know, people are, people are doing their thing. I think the work that God was restoring the Israelites to was the work of being his people. It was the work of being the people of God who lived out the mission of God for the sake of the world. You see, rebuilding walls, that happens in 52 days. <laughs> That's fast. Rebuilding a people that takes time. See, see you, you can gather a crowd fast, but growing a community, that takes time. We can put together a worship service fast. We can craft a mission statement and we can hang it up on the wall or put it on our website fast. But, but to, to actually become a worshiping, worshiping community, to become the mission that God has given us, to become a people and a community, these things, these things take time. And this is, this is one of the five hundred reasons why I am so thankful for, for what I do and who I get to do it with and where I get to do it. People keep, people keep asking me, it's kind of funny, like they'll kind of pull me aside and be like, hey, hey, you've been here a while. You, you still glad? <laughs> like, <laughs> like you sold your house and you moved and, and like things going okay for you. And, and, and I can honestly, I tell them and I can tell you that I have never, ever, there's a few people from our search team right over there. I, I have never, been more excited about what I'm doing and where I'm doing it and who I get to do it with. And the belief of, of what God is doing here at Heartland and the chance to be a part of it. And if I wasn't up here wearing this microphone, I would be right there cheering us on and helping us move forward and being the community and the people of God. But what I love is that my role as part of our lead team is that we realize, you know what, for us to be the people of God who live out the mission of God, it's not, it's not going to happen apart from community. That's my role. That's what the focus is on is community and discipleship. That, that the work that God wants to do in us, in you, through all of us, that this doesn't happen apart from us locking arms together and following Jesus together. That this really isn't a back seat to our mission statement. It's really the tip of the spear that we make space to build relationships that make Jesus first. And so this week, I really encourage you Chapter 9, we, we don't have time to really dig into this beautiful prayer that Nehemiah has in chapter 9. It's long. It's the longest prayer in all of Scripture because he goes all the way back to Abraham and he recounts all of the instances of God's faithfulness. And he captures even the instances of, of Israel's unfaithfulness during this time. And, and it's significant. And at the end, there's, there's a moment as people hear Nehemiah's prayer in this worship gathering, they make a vow. This significant moment, this significant vow and commitment to God, it says, it says this, it says, in view of all of this, we, the people of Israel, are making a binding agreement and we're putting it in writing and our leaders, our Levites and our priests, they are affixing their seals to it. Now, what are they committing to? They're committing to the work of being the people of God. They're committing to the work of being the people of God who live out the mission of God not for the sake of themselves, but for the sake of the world. And so as we kind of round third and head for home here, um, if, is there, if there's a couple nudges that I want to give us here, Heartland, um, and if you're newer to Heartland, uh, and you're, I just give you permission in this moment just to kind of lean back and, and listen in, um, I really want 
what I'm about to say. Really, for those of you who've been hanging around Heartland for a little while, maybe you've been on the fence for a little bit, maybe you, you call this your church home, trying to figure out your place here. For those of you, um, I want to offer us a, a couple of nudges, and I do so a little anxiously because, because I still am newish around here, and I don't quite know. I've already thrown one punch to your gut, and uh, here's a couple other nudges. Um, so can I do that? Is that all right? Yeah, all right. Um, we've got work to do. We're not rebuilding walls, but we're, we're rebuilding a church on mission. We're rebuilding ministries and leadership. We're rebuilding what does it look like in this new era to be the people of God who, who live out the mission of God. We're rebuilding being a loving presence in our cities, in our world for, for God to do his thing in. And so the first nudge that I have for us is I, I have talked with uh, several people who over the past couple of years, just because of what's been going on with transitions and, and, and hard stuff in the midst of our church over the past few years, and I, and I get it, and, and Heartland is not alone in, in weathering transitions, um, but that was hard. And maybe you're a little bit skittish about jumping back in. And some of you have said, you know what, just because of kind of going through the ringer a little bit, we're just going to kind of wait and see how this plays out before we jump back in. And I totally get that. My question for, for those of you who've ever, who are asking that is, do you know what it is you're waiting for? Do you know what it is that you're waiting to see? Because what I know is we've got work to do. And there's two options. You can kind of wait and see if Heartland becomes the kind of church that you want to be a part of. Or you can jump in and help us do the work of building church, re rebuilding Heartland into the kind of church that you want to be a part of that you can jump in and roll up your sleeves and there is room on the line here for you. And so if you're, just answer that question, is, is, is do you know what it is that you're waiting for? It makes me think a little bit if someone had told Nehemiah, uh, you know what, we're excited that the wall is being rebuilt. We're gonna kind of stand back and wait and see what happens with that wall. And the hard part, the grievous part of that is that they were missing out on an opportunity to be a part of some monumental work that God was doing. That from that day forward, they could look back and show their kids, that brick, I put that brick there. Your mom and I, we built that corner of the wall with our neighbors. You know, that's the opportunity that we have right here. So, so that's one nudge. Here's the second nudge. But before, like, was, was that nudge okay? Was that safe? Yeah. Okay, good. Here's, here's the second nudge. Uh, COVID taught us a lot about being the church taught us a lot about being the church that, that we needed to be reminded of and we really needed to be taught of. It reminded us that the church is not a building that we come to, that the church is a movement that we're a part of and that wherever we are, wherever you are, there is the church. And I love how in this season we've been able to leverage and create ways for technology, for those of you watching online, for all of us who have, to be able to stay connected with Heartland, you know, across distances or when we find ourselves unable to be here. I love the way that, that online has allowed us to widen the front door as big as possible so that anyone and everyone can get to stick their toes in the water of church or Jesus or, or Heartland before they take that brave step of, of coming here in person. I love the way that, that online is teaching us ways that, that we can be the church in greater ways. And hear me, we are going to continue to leverage technology as much as we can in this season. But we need to be aware that COVID also taught us that, that the more personal we make something, the more powerful it is in our life. And COVID also taught us the importance of community and how hard community can be. And that sometimes we can trade community for convenience. 
And so while being completely devoted to our online technologies, I know that there came a time when I needed a nudge to take a step. And I needed a nudge to step back to something, to some sort of relationship or community or, or when, a, when the time was safe to an in-person kind of experience. And so if you're watching online, when you watch online, hear me, we're going to be grateful, grateful to the end for, for continuing to get to be a part of anyone's life who is, con- who is connecting with Heartland Online. But what I also want you to know is that there's something missing from our life when we don't get to be with you. And so what do you do with this? I think if, if, if you find yourself in an online season right now, what step can you take to make it personal? You know, can you, can you connect in community with our online chat that's happening right now or after the service? You know, can, can, you, can you jump into Wednesday nights at midweek on Zoom so you can be able to do life in community with others across distances through online? Or does there, does there come a time when you're ready to take that strange, brave step back to an in-person service? And it's weird. Those of you who've taken that step, it's like, wait, whoa, I forgot what this was like. But every person I've talked to was like, it was worth it. It's good. And we are committed to making sure we do that as safely as we possibly can in the landscape that we're in. And so whenever you're ready to come back in person, we're ready for you. See, we've got work to do, Harlan. And our work isn't rebuilding walls. The walls have been built. But we have work of being rebuilt into the people of God who are the mission of God for the sake of our world. We're rebuilding relationships. We're rebuilding community. We're rebuilding leadership. See, God is in a process of rebuilding and restoring. He's rebuilding our church. He's rebuilding other churches that we get to lock arms with. He's rebuilding families and marriages. He's restoring unity and purpose and hope and mission across the board. And he doesn't do this through brick and mortar or through rocks. He does this through something so much more marvelous and scandalous in its grace. You see, fast forward the tape about 400 years. As significant as a moment this was that the Israelites made this this big vow and commitment, God knew that that commitment was not gonna be enough for them to be the people of God who lived out the mission of God for the sake of the world. He knew that it was gonna take the faithfulness of someone so much more powerful and greater. Remember how God is always faithful in our unfaithfulness? That's why Jesus came. That's why he lived and taught and died and rose from that tomb. Because we needed the faithfulness of one who really could rebuild us and restore us. And because of his grace, which is what we celebrate when we celebrate communion, because of his grace, he rebuilds and restores our relationships with one another and also our relationship with him. This is a vertical and a horizontal experience that we're about to have right now. And so as you came in or in your house right now, maybe you gathered the elements. There's a small little film at the top of that that'll help you get to the bread there. It's a little tricky. And then there's the juice. These things that Jesus said, these symbolize my body and and, and my blood, which has been given for you. That apart from this sacrifice, this idea of, of God living with us will not happen. That it takes the gift of, of Jesus, of his grace and his power. And so as we lean into that grace now together as a family, as a community, Those of you online, we're leaning in with you too. This is our chance to be the people of God. This is our chance to see the grace that even makes that possible. 
that keeps us moving forward for the work that God wants to do in us. And so Jesus, we come to you humbled and grateful. We thank you that you were working and that you continue to work and that our job really right now is to rest in the work that you are doing. So let us be reminded right now of the love that you have for us, of the purpose that you have given us, that you are present with us and we are present with one another. And so let this be a moment for us, a commitment to you, a desire to be your people, to live out your mission and to do it for the sake of our world. And so as the band plays and leads us in this song, this is a moment when you on your own or with someone that you're with, you can take these elements and then I'll come back up in a few moments and dismiss us.